when you boast in the Lord, it is, it is almost impossible to villainize others because you recognize that you have been saved from so much. Faith is the key ingredient of our boasting. That was true in David's life. His life was on the line. And he said, let us magnify the Lord together, which teaches us something else about boasting. If you boast in something alone, when it can be shared, it will always lead to conceit and arrogance. If you have the opportunity to boast in something that can be shared, you should share it as a Christian. Oh, come, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Let us boast in his name together. It's about these ritual boasts we do together because they are the discipline by which we move from our fears into a radiant life of faith. Thanks for tuning in to the Trinity Presbyterian Church Weekly Podcast. We're glad you joined us. Trinity is a member congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America and the Acts 29 Network. We are located in Owasso, Oklahoma. Follow us at trinityowasso.com. Also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Trinity Owasso. In the summers at Trinity, we, we look at the Psalms. This is our sixth summer to look at the Psalms. And the book of Psalms is the key place in the Bible, and in fact, of, in all of ancient literature, where you see the highs and the lows ex of human emotion explored with the world in view in order to help us, number one, understand ourselves better, and number two, to understand God. And what we've seen this summer is that God is big enough to handle all of your emotions. And that you are a more civilized human being when you share your emotions with him. You don't have to hide from him. He already knows you anyway. The Psalms are really about more deeply trusting God with your sadness and joys, with your desperations and your thanksgiving, with your confession and your praise. And today we come to the last of our Psalms of the summer. Psalm 34. It's a thanksgiving psalm. It's a psalm of praise. Psalm 34 teaches us how to navigate through our dread and our fears with thanksgiving and praise. Overwhelmed? Afraid? Dreading something? Those of you who are at home, do you feel threatened? Psalm 34 answers the question, how are we delivered from our fears? Now, this psalm is an acrostic, which all the third graders in the room know what that means. But for us adults, that means that every line of the psalm is a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet until the very last line in verse 22. And so it's meant to teach us something, progressively teach us how we are delivered from our fears. David wrote this psalm in the context when he was on the run from Saul. And there's a funny story that some of you um, have read before in 1 Samuel 21 where David is running from Saul and he goes from king to king to king of these nations around Israel to find shelter. And the first king he comes to is the king of Gath. And his name is Abimelech, which... Akish is also the name you'll read in 1 Samuel 21. 
Abimelech and Achish are the same person, whether it's a Semitic name or a Hebrew name, that's the difference in the way you pronounce their names. You see Abimelech in the top of the psalm where it says, and David was on the run from Abimelech. Do you see that right above verse one? David ran into the safe haven of Abimelech when he's running from Saul and he acted like a madman because he realized that Abimelech was about to turn him into Saul. And it says he clawed at the gates and he let his spittle run down his beard. It's a really strange episode in David's life. He acted crazy. And Abimelech, who had a lot of madmen evidently in his kingdom, said, I don't need another one. Let David go. And so David goes on to Moab and his parents stay with the king of Moab while David continues to be on the run. So in the context of David acting like a madman, of being fearful that he's about to be turned in by the king of Gath back to Saul. David writes this psalm. And it's in that context that we see it glisten all the more brightly. So if you're willing and able, would you stand with me and we'll read Psalm 34. Psalm 34 of David. When he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his fears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil <clears throat> to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Please. <clears throat> what are Americans afraid of? 
Each year, Chapman University hosts the Fear Index. And the last study that they did gives us the top 10 greatest fears of Americans. Here they are. <clears throat> Number one was corrupt government officials at 77.2%. Number two was the pollution of oceans, lakes, and rivers at 68%. Number three was people I love becoming seriously ill at 66.7%. Four was pollution of drinking water, 65%. Six was people I love dying at 63%. Seven was air pollution. Eight was cyber terrorism. Nine was extinction of plant and animal species. And 10 was a tie between global warming and climate change and not having enough money for our future. What's interesting about the fear index is that the percentage of people who have fears has steadily increased over the past five years. The greatest number one fear in five years ago was only 60% of Americans had that fear. Today it's 77. What's interesting is that the, the percentages continue to, to go up. Dying used to be at 31%, now it's at 34%. Zombies is at the very bottom of the list, still at 9.3%. And public speaking, gulp, is at 31%. Children, what are you afraid of? Students, what are you afraid of? Not making that grade in the class. Disappointing mom and dad. Not being in the friend crowd that you want to be in. Like each of us, young or old, we have fears that when we're honest and when we're quiet long enough, we begin to feel them. And we're weighed down by them. In this psalm, is an antidote to those fears. And in it, David, in the midst of being threatened to be handed over to Saul, which would mean certain death for him, he writes this magnificent psalm to teach us how we are to be delivered from our fears. And so, let's look. We're just going to spend time on the first point of the sermon today, if you're a note taker. Just the first point, the first 10 verses. Notice with me, Psalm 34, verse 4. Lower your, lower your eyes to your text and look. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Fear is used three times in this psalm. In verse 4, and then it's used again in verse 7, and it's used again in verse 9. But if you notice the way fear is used in verse 4, it means a terrorizing fear, a dread, a being afraid, a being threatened by something. It's a visceral fear. It's not fear of circumstance. It's deeper than that. It's a deep dread. It's an internal fear that is not changed merely by the changing of circumstances. It's a lingering fear. But then when you get down to verse 7 and verse 9, the word that David uses for fear, same word, means a holy and reverent awe of God. So how do you go from a deep dread to this awe and wonder of God in 10 verses? Well, David, he shows us. Now notice, notice verse 5. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. And this shows us a radical change. 
from I was delivered from my fears to my face is now radiant. How the change? How does it happen so quick? The word in Hebrew for radiant is nacharu. It is a word picture of a mother's face lighting up when she sees her daughter or son walk into the room. Or it's the, it's the mother's face, the mother of an Olympian watching their son or daughter perform before the world. It's the place when, when Isaiah is trying to describe what humanity is going to look like in glory in Isaiah 60. When Isaiah says, then you will look and you will be radiant and your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you and to you the riches of the nation will come. Radiant speaks to our appearance when someone whom we know performs beautifully. And so from our fears to a radiant glow. How does it happen? Well, remember this is an acrostic. So you have to go back to the beginning of the psalm and notice what you read at the beginning. The key phrase is, I sought the Lord and he answered me in verse four. How did you seek the Lord, David? What did you do? In verse one, it says, David praises God with his mouth. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. And then it has this interesting phrase where it says in verse 2, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Now according to the verse 2, this attitude, this change from dread to radiance happens as David boasts in the Lord. Are you with me? So David here is boasting in the Lord. What, is, what does that mean? When I was growing up, I was raised, you don't boast. Don't be proud. Don't boast. But here David is not boasting in his own ego or his own performance. He is boasting. What does the Bible say? He is boasting in the Lord. The word for boasting in the ancient world was the part of the ritual of battle. It was what you did whenever you came before battle and you were leading your men. You would lead them before you called these men to charge into what might be sudden death. You did a ritual boast. You said to them, you know, you can see William Wallace riding before the men, right? You can see he was before the end of the day, we're going to have that king's head on our banner standards. Rawr! And everybody freaks out and they raise their sabers and swords and they charge into battle. It's a ritual boast. It's kind of like me saying to you, I can't wait till OU goes into the SEC and they get crushed every week, right? You see what happened there? So like, what did that do in you, right? That, that like, that's a ritual boast and it makes you, yeah, you want to give a boast back. That's what it means. David is making a ritual boast. He's not boasting in his own ability, but he is taking the energy of what he would boast in and he's directing it to the Lord and say only you can deliver me out of the hand of God only you can do this only you father are the one who can deliver Nick only you are the one who can heal him only you are the one who could give Anna Keltner the good report this week about her cancer being continue to be in remission only you can do it only you can work in shepherd's life to open his heart to believe I mean it's a ritual boast we are boasting in baptism before the world to say shepherd is yours Jesus 
And he's pledged his life to you. And all of us are going to help him walk in the beauty and the grandeur and the encouragement of the gospel all the days of his life. That's a boast. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 9, 23. Nor the strong man boast in his strength. Or the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boasts that he knows me. The problem in every human heart is that we tend to boast in everything else except for the Lord. And so it's no wonder to me, is it? No wonder to you that Americans are full of fear. Because we have not learned the skill that David teaches to every Christian is that if you're going to be freed from your dread and from your fear, you have to learn the discipline of boasting, not in yourself or in your own resources, but in the Lord and what he has done for you. We don't say, I'm a good father, look at my children. We don't say, I'm a good salesman, look at my performance. Let me tell you about my bonus. We don't say, I'm politically important, look at my voting record. As Christians, we are part of a particular people and we say our boast is in the work of Christ. We are covered with a righteousness that is not our own. So it allows us to sacrifice and to give and to spend time with and to devote our lives to things that are far bigger than you because it's not even about you. And if you walk out of here today with anything, oh Jesus, help them to know it's not about them. It's about you. Because when you boast, you're grounding your identity into something. It is like you're pouring another 80-pound bag of cement you get at Home Depot on your identity and saying, mix it up. Mix it up. And so that is why in the context of worship, we are training children to boast in the Lord through confession of sin and through baptism and through the Lord's Supper. And we're, we're training our hearts to boast in the greatness of who our God is. Because when you boast in the Lord, it is... It is almost impossible to villainize others because you recognize that you have been saved from so much. What then becomes of our boasting, Paul writes? It is excluded by a law of works, no, by a law of faith. Faith is the key ingredient of our boasting. And that was true in David's life. His life was on the line. And he said, let us magnify the Lord together, which teaches us something else about boasting. If you boast in something alone, when it can be shared, it will always lead to conceit and arrogance. If you have the opportunity to boast in something that can be shared, you should share it as a Christian. Oh, come, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Let us boast in his name together. Which is why so many Christians who leave the local church and say, well, I've got Jesus. I don't need the church. They are dying on the vine and they don't recognize it because they're meant to boast with people. And they just litter their lives with excuses of being part of the local church. Well, you know, the pastor did this or I'm hurt by that. It's not about the pastor. It's not about you even. It's about these ritual boasts we do together because they are the discipline by which we move from our fears into a radiant life of faith. In John chapter 12, Jesus Weighed whether he should escape the hour of his death. And he rejected the alternative 
which he could have chosen. Because he said, it is precisely through my dying that I would finish the mission of glorifying my Father in heaven. Because I'm going to boast in my Father at a moment in time when Jesus, perfectly righteous in every way, could have easily boasted in being the only perfect human who's ever lived. Now my soul is troubled, Jesus wrote. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify my name. He moved from fear to radiance. He boasted in the fame of his father's name. And then a voice from heaven came and said, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The purpose of Jesus' death was to glorify the Father. It was to boast in the amazing goodness and grandeur of God's holiness because his wrath had to be appeased somehow and either it would be appeased by our sinfulness in condemnation forever or Jesus himself could be the one who was condemned so that we might move from our deepest fears to radiant life with him. Jesus, who deserved all the radiance of the glory of God, chose to give it up in order that his Father might be glorified instead. So the first discipline David teaches us is that we are to boast. We are to boast in the Lord and that boasting is to be shared. But not only does David tell us that we ought to boast, notice what he also says down at verse 8. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good things. It's not just boasting in the Lord, not just boasting in the Lord together, but it's tasting it also. Have any of you ever, um, some of you have climbed a mountain. And you know that when you're climbing a mountain and you're walking and it's, you know, you're above the tree line and it's, getting, you know, either it's really hot or it's really cold usually, and you're walking to the top, and man, you are just worn out. And you're walking with somebody, and you're walking, you're watching their steps, and step by step by step you walk. You're, but you're not thinking about mimicking their behavior. You're not thinking about, am I taking one foot, putting one foot in front of the other? Some of us actually are when you get to that point of the mountain. But you're thinking about the view at the top. Man, I'm going to get to that top because the view is worth all of the sacrifice. Just to be there and to look out and see the grandeur of God's creation from the top of a mountain is amazing. Now, if you were to meet with me after church and you were to tell me about a mountaintop experience and you were to explain to me how I climbed the mountain and which trailhead to take and what I should pack, or you were to take me there and let me see it. Those are two radically different things, aren't they? And Jonathan Edwards helps me understand this so much, even as he helps so many of you understand this. He talks about the difference between notional understandings of God, rational understandings of God, and sensory understandings of God, tasting his sweetness and his glory. And Edwards describes it in this way. He says... A man can describe to you what honey is like by telling you about its texture and its color. And one man can describe it perfectly well, know everything about honey. And the other man, who may not know as much about the specific characteristics of honey, can taste it. 
And his eyes light up. And Edward says, I tell you, who among these two men know honey the best? It's the one who has tasted it. And Edwards writes, thus there is a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and the beauty of that holiness of his grace. To know Jesus is to develop a taste for him, a hunger for him, to yearn for him. So that when you're walking the Christian life, you're not just thinking about, well, did I have my quiet time today? Did I pray today? Did I go to church this week? This month, this year. No, it is recognizing that the taste of the Lord's grace is so sweet that you don't even think about giving your money away. It's a joy. You don't think about giving your time. It's a joy. You don't think about serving somebody else. You just do it. Why? Because you've seen the mountaintop. You've seen the view of God's greatness and his goodness and his glory. You've tasted the honey. Have you? David is tasting his spittle as it drips down his beard, friends. Like he is in an agonizing situation. And yet he can write, taste and see that the Lord is good. Jonathan Edwards elsewhere writes that when he is in pain or when he is in an uncomfortable situation, he always imagines the pains of martyrdom and of hell. <laughs> to keep it in perspective, <laughs> he tastes that the Lord is good even when his situations seem to produce dread on a mind that is just naturally centered on the self. You see the sequence here is the sequence of boasting in the Lord. You do it together. You taste and see that the Lord is good. And notice, notice what Peter said, uh, what David says. Oh, Fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have what? No lack. 55.7% of Americans fear they don't have enough money for the future. And that may be true. And you may not. And the Bible doesn't promise you that you'll have it. But he promises something far sweeter. He promises that you can taste the Lord himself, his presence, know his nearness. So that he turns your deepest fears into radiant glow so that you're able to say, oh Father, there is indeed a difference between knowing you, that you are holy and gracious and tasting your nearness and your sweetness. Has that ever happened in your life? When was it? When did you move from knowing about him doctrinally to knowing about him personally and powerfully, having tasted it? It's there. He wants you to see that in his grandeur and glory, he doesn't want you to settle for processed dog food when he offers you filet mignon. He doesn't want you to settle for lesser things like a legalistic checklist of how to look Christian in a society quickly becoming unchurched. He wants you to say, taste the filet mignon, yearn for it, magnify the Lord together. And so the fruits of it is that you share your story with other people. Like you want to tell people about it, boast with me. Join with me. This is amazing, isn't it? This is why we're in community groups, by the way. We want to boast in our stories together. God has been so faithful to me in this way. 
And even in this difficult season of my life, I need you to help me boast in the Lord because I don't really feel like boasting in the Lord. In Psalm 34, David gives us the key to move from our fears to a radiant and holy delight. And he says the first step is that you boast in the Lord. Try it on for size this week. Just journal in your Bible. Or when you're driving to work, just pray, Lord, I boast in your glory. Only you could have done this in my life. Thank you. And see if you don't begin to taste it. See if you don't begin to taste his nearness to you. You don't just describe God theoretically. You, you experience him. See if you don't begin to taste that. Do it. And you'll find that your face lights up like a father watching his child perform or like a mother who's watching their baby grow up. Or better yet, you'll find that your face is radiant before a holy father who looks to you and says, there is therefore now no condemnation for you, my child. Come to me. I love you. I know your relationship with your dad wasn't great. I know all your story and I love you and I care for you. Come to me. Friends, if we as a church are going to be a countercultural community for the common good of our city, then we have got to develop key spiritual disciplines that David and most beautifully Jesus demonstrates for us. To boast in the glory of Christ, to taste of his sweetness, and then even when we find ourselves in desperate situations like David, we will be able to have our hearts throb because our security is not in our performance. It is in what Christ has done for you and for me. And as we come to the table this morning, that is our boast. As you walk up here, you are boasting not by my power, but by yours. Not by my strength, but by yours. And Jesus is waiting to meet with you and to shepherd you and to encourage you as you partake of these elements together. Notice the sequence. Boasting with others, tasting it. And allow your fears to move from terror to move to a holy and reverential awe because only, only you, Father, only you could be so good to us that we can taste and see that the Lord is good.